Hey everybody, it's Dan Dan, and today we are going to dive on into a step study. It's a fantastic day, because today we go into the second part of step 12, and step 12 is having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. We tried to carry the message to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Holy moly, what kind of a grandiose idea is that, right? So what we're going to do today, though, is really important. It's got a a twist at the end. So it's important that you listen to the end. It sort of identifies in a lot of our groups, a lot of our thinking, that pervasive selfishness that just lives in us all the time. So how do we step away from that selfishness, right? How do we do something about it that is productive? It's just constantly sneaking in. And in the sixth step, we learned that this is a a battle that really never, ever stops. And I, I hate to use the word battle, you know. It's just something that requires our attention on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis, depending on how we're seeing the world, how our framework of the mind is putting it together. The 12th step in the big book of AA is commonly reserved to the working with others chapter. And in there, we find five years after Bill W. gets sober, that is, focuses really on how do we deal with the new prospect? How do we do deal with that new alcoholic? What do we do to help people, help other alcoholics achieve the life that we've achieved using these steps? And 18 years later, the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions comes out and a much broader view of Step 12 is presented to us. And we're presented in the first part of Step 12 with a series of questions. And he says that there's just one question. He says, you know, what about the practice of these principles in all our affairs? That's the one question. But it goes on and on and on. Can we love the whole pattern of living as eagerly as we do the small segment of it we discover when we try to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety? And that's what really we're going to talk about today is can we love every single man, woman, Every single thing. Can we, can we move away from the self-centered, selfish idea of me? It's all about me. One, two, three, and me. And in the 12th step in here, he was talking about the uh, two-step process where it's step one and step 12. A lot of people want to do like, I don't drink anymore, so you don't drink anymore. But they really haven't done the in-between part. And if they have, they've sort of let that go. Their life gets good. My life got good. And I didn't necessarily flow with these 12 steps. I just kind of became intuitive, like the promises say. And what they're asking me to do in this part today, in this different part, is to step back and remember who I am. And remember that that alcoholic still lives in me and that we got to do something about it. It starts off in a weird way because we left it out at the first part of step 12, dropping off at this sentence right here. We have seen AA suffer, suffer lingering and fatal illness with little complaint and often in good cheer. We have sometimes seen families broken apart by misunderstanding, tensions, or actual infidelity who are reunited by the AA way of life. And that's where we left it off. Going into it, we're gonna talk about earning power, but there's a really important thing we're gonna talk about. And, you know, let's just hold off. Let's just, well, you'll notice it when we get to it because it pops up quick. So we're starting off today, the first few words are, though the earning power of most AAs is relatively high. Well, I, I, that actually seems to be true. You know, we're a really obsessive bunch. And if we obsess on making money, we earn a lot of money. You know, doesn't matter. 
All right, so here we go. Though the earning power of most AAs is relatively high, we have some members who have never seemed to get on their feet money-wise, and still others who encounter heavy financial reverses, the loss of money. Yikes. Yikes, I've encountered that. <laughs> Ordinarily, we see these situations met with fortitude, strength, courage, fortitude, and faith. Like most people, we have found that we can take our big lumps as they come. But also like others, we often discover a greater challenge. We often discover a greater challenge in the lesser and more continuous problems of life. I think for me, that's because I'm comfortable with them. They're there, but I'm used to it. So I don't know if it's a problem or not, you know. Our answer, critical sentence, our answer is in still more spiritual development. That is what this part of the 12th step is all about. More spiritual development. Only, only. Like not, there, there's a couple of other ways or, you know, you can do this or that, leave this out. Don't, what, it says only by this means, by more spiritual development, only by this means can we improve our chances, can we improve our chances for really happy and useful living. Woo! As we grow spiritually, we find that our old attitudes toward our instincts need to go under drastic revisions. Our desires for emotional security and wealth, for personal prestige and power, for romance, and for family satisfactions, all these have to be tempered and redirected. And what he's going to talk about is that we redirect it outside of us. Instead of looking at it for what we're getting out of it, we're going to see how we can add to it. How do we make this better for other people? How do we pour into the stream of life? How do we work from the standpoint of being of maximum use to God and our fellow man? So he goes on. We have learned that the satisfaction of instincts cannot be the soul and aim of our lives. If we place instincts first, we have got the cart before the horse. We shall be pulled backward into disillusionment. So if I'm just working for me to satisfy my instincts, if I reach out into this world to get for me so I get satisfied without consideration of other people, it's not going to work and I'll become disillusioned in it. I'll become where I'm living this lie. I'll be using that ancient vicious thing called rationalization, the lies of logic to get my way. So he goes on, but when we are willing, when we make an agreement with ourselves to place spiritual growth first, then and only then do we have a real chance. Yeah, that's what it says. So what he's talking about is constant spiritual development by putting other people first and leveraging the tools of AA to be of benefit to other people. Not you. Not you. You can't help but benefit. You can't help but benefit, right? So the tools of AA, we're going to get into a thing about the tools of AA in just a second. It says, after we come into AA, if we go on growing, that's an if, that should be capital letters highlighted in your book. If we go on growing, our attitudes our angle of approach, the way that we see things, the way that we think about them, and our actions, the way that we behave towards security, emotional security, and financial security, commence to change profoundly. Not because I will it, it's because I'm practicing these principles. And when I apply these principles over those things, I'm faced with a different way of handling them. Our demand for emotional security for our own way, for our own way, right? Treat me the way I want to be treated so I feel good. I don't care what it takes out of you. Had constantly thrown us into unworkable relations with other people. You can imagine that. We've had it happen to us too. Though we were sometimes quite unconscious of this, the result always had been the same. 
Here it is. Either we had tried to play God and dominate those about us, or we had insisted on being over-dependent on them, where people had temporarily let us run their lives as though they were still children, we have felt very happy and secure in ourselves. I've done exactly that. Exactly that. I completely understand where he's going here. Critical sentence next. But when they finally resisted or ran away, we were bitterly hurt and disappointed. Fact. <laughs> That's a fact. We blame them. I don't know that I did that. I had enough time and sobriety to know that I am the reason for my problems. We blame them being quite unable to see that our unreasonable demands, my unreasonable demands, my treating other people as a resource for me will eventually backfire. It'll backfire and they will leave me. And when they do, when they run away, I'm going to be hurt and disappointed, being quite unable to see that our, meaning yours and mine and others, unreasonable demands have been the cause. Think about that. That's a fact. When we had taken the opposite tact and insisted, like infants ourselves, that people protect and take care of us, or that the world owed us a living, I've done all this, you owe it to me. I'm, I've earned it. I deserve it. <laughs> it sounds funny when I say it today because I don't see the world that way, but man, did I see it that way while I was a drinking man. I loved to not like you because you wouldn't give me what I thought I deserved. What I deserved. I'm a fine, upstanding citizen that, well, doesn't do anything right and, you know, constantly drives drunk and treats his wife like crap and doesn't hold up to his obligations and can't pay his bills, but I deserve it, right? It's, it's the egomaniac with the inferiority complex. So we go on. When we had taken the opposite tact and had insisted, like infants ourselves, that people protect and take care of us or that the world owed us a living, then the result had been equally unfortunate. This often caused the people we had loved most to push us aside or perhaps desert us entirely. Our disillusionment lies, we tell ourselves, the way we've rationalized the things that logic gets leveraged to. Our disillusionment had been hard to bear because we just drown ourselves in this stuff. We couldn't imagine people acting that way towards us. How dare they? We had failed to see that though adult in years, we were still behaving childishly, trying to turn everybody, friends, wives, husbands, even the world itself, into protective parents. We had refused to learn the very hard lesson that, critical, overdependence upon people is unsuccessful because all people are fallible and God is not. And even the best of them will sometimes let us down especially when our demands for attention become unreasonable. As we made spiritual progress, we saw through these fallacies. It became clear that if we ever were to feel emotionally secure among grown-up people, which I do not like because I want to be one of them grown-up people, we would have to put our lives on a give-and-take basis. We would have to develop the sense of being in partnership or brotherhood with all those around us. How crazy is that, right? How do I feel that way? I'm all alone. I'm unique. I don't necessarily feel that. We saw that we would need to give constantly of ourselves without demands for repayment. But I want repayment. I've earned this, right? I've worked so hard, that type of stuff. I did this a lot. There's been a long time in my life that I wasn't really willing to do it unless I was getting something 
for it or from it. You know, there's this thing about me that wants recognition. There's this thing about me that wants financial reward. There's, I want attaboys. I want pats on my back. And what if we were all, you know, stuck out in the ocean, the shipwreck things used a lot, right? We're all in the same vessel and we're all stuck out in the ocean and you manage to swim some stupid amount of time or distance, you know, for a day and a half, right? You hear these stories every once in a while and they make it back to the beach. But that person isn't sitting around trying to get the world record, trying to get the recognition for the swimming. They get to the beach in utter gratitude and relief, <laughs> not going, man, I am a killer swimmer. I, did you see that swimming I just did? I just treaded water for two darn days, you know? They don't say anything like that. They, they're just glad to be there. They did all this work, not for a reward or recognition. They did it to save their life. And that's what this is getting at. We do it to save our lives. When we persistently did this, we gradually found that people were attracted to us as never before. That's a big thing. People being attracted to me in my life with as crazy as I might be some days, that's meaningful, right? And even if they failed us, we could be understanding and not too seriously affected. It'll sting for a moment. It'll sting for a moment. It'll set you back. It might send you into that place where emotions are so much that there's nothing, right? Overwhelmed. But just for a moment. And over time, use these tools of the steps and you'll work, you'll work your way right on through it. You'll emerge from it quickly. I've come out of some difficult things lately. And I've done it using the steps and the program suggestions, things like calling your sponsor, going to meetings, reading in the book, prayer, meditation, all that stuff, and working with other alcoholics, working with other alcoholics. When I do these things, I step right on by. I step right on by. It, it, it's somehow better, you know? Not that it's better in a way. It's just different in a way that I'm finding interesting. It's different in a way that's more like an adventure than a curse. And it's just a different attitude like it told me to have. It's just taking on a different way of looking at it. All right, let's get back to it. It says, when we develop still more, that's spiritually developed, we discovered that we discovered the best possible source of emotional stability to be God himself. That things are happening automatically. That things are going on around us without our involvement. The solution and future already exists. It just hasn't come completely together yet. The problem remains solved already. It's just a matter of time and my participation to determine what that solution looks like when we get there. It's a critical idea to remember that I am the source of my trouble. I am the reason for my problem. Selfishness, self-centeredness, self-pity is the root of it all. Resentment is what I want to avoid. So trusting in God, good orderly direction, or if something hits you really hard, that gift of desperation. If you're in a meeting and you're hearing wise words, that group of drunks, right? All those different analogies that it's already there. Those people knew that stuff before they showed up at the meeting, right? Good orderly direction. It's right here in the book. You can go anytime and get it. Gift of desperation, that suffering, that eliminates the barriers between me and God. If you get hungry, you know, this is a great analogy to think about. If you're out and each day you don't eat, right? And the first day you don't eat, 
you know, you look at, you find some bugs on the ground and you're like, I'm not eating bugs. You know, I'll, I'm going to get out of here. And you rationalize. You say, I'm going to get out of this desert or wherever you're at, stranded, unable to eat. And then the second day comes and you say, you know, I'm still going to get out of here. I'm not going to do it. But there comes a point where you're hungry enough. There comes a point where those barriers are gone. There comes a point of suffering, of suffering where the barriers, the resistance, the pathway has no more barrier, no more resistance. And those previous, previous prejudices, those previous thoughts and ideas go away. And you will be able to do just about anything that presents itself to you, like eat a bug in a desert with your five days without any food. You'll just do it. You would never do that today, maybe. You'll be able to do it then. Suffering clears away the barriers that you put up, that I put up between God and myself. Hmm. We found that dependence upon God, his perfect justice, forgiveness, and love was healthy. And that it would work where nothing else would. If we really depended on God, we couldn't very well play God to our fellows, nor would we feel the urge wholly to rely on human protection and care. So playing God, what does that mean, Dan Dan? Let me help you out with that. When I'm playing God, I am not seeking outside counsel. When I'm playing God, I'm not leveraging new information. When I'm playing God, I don't want to tell anybody about my circumstances. When I'm playing God, I believe that I am the sole arbiter of all information and all solutions. I'm not trying to do anything different. I'm trying to drive this thing the way I want it to go. And when I'm not playing God, I'm doing the five critical things, right? Pray, call your sponsor, go to a meeting, read in a book, work with another alcoholic. If I'm doing those things, I'm allowing God into my life and the resistance isn't there. So that's an important to think about. It goes on. These were the new attitudes, the way of thinking that finally brought many of us an inner strength and peace that could not be deeply shaken by the shortcomings of others or by any calamity not of our own making. So we become observers to the outside world, not participants in the problems. This new outlook was, we learned, something especially necessary to us alcoholics. For alcoholism had been a lonely business, even though we had been surrounded by people who loved us. But when self-will, that's that, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to rely on my own answers. I'm not going to get any new information. Self-will had driven everybody away and our isolation had become complete. It caused us to play the big shot in cheap bar rooms and then fare forth alone on the street to depend upon the charity of passerby. We were still trying to find emotional security by being dominating or dependent upon others. Even when our fortunes had not ebbed that much and we nevertheless found ourselves alone in the world. We still vainly tried to be secure by some unhealthy kind of domination or dependence. And this is part of that ongoing sixth step, that thing that we really don't want to finish, you know, that we've got to be absolutely willing to look at these things and constantly evaluate them and seek outside counsel, step out of ourselves and ask people, hey, this is going on in my life. You know, my, how can I use these steps? What can I do in the step work? What suggestion would you give me to do? And then go and do that suggestion because you'll sink back into this. You know, 
it's part of those character defects that even when you think you're not ever going to again, you can uncover again that you've sunk back into it. So he goes on. For those of us who were like that, AA had a very special meaning. Though it, through it, we begin to learn right relations with people who understand us. That would be our fellow alcoholics. We don't have to be alone anymore. I love that. I love when we get into a meeting and there's a newcomer and they're like, oh my freaking, I can't believe I got of it. And then someone just says something so wonderfully welcoming and peaceful, like, you know what? You don't have to be alone anymore. Just come on back. Keep coming back. I just love it. Most married folks in AA have very happy homes. To a surprising extent, AA has offset the damage to family life brought about by years of alcoholism. But just like all other societies, we do have sex and marital problems. And sometimes they are distressingly acute. Permanent marriage breakups and separations, however, are unusual in AA. Our main problem is not how we are to stay married. Here it is. It is how to be more happily married by eliminating, eliminating, eliminating the severe emotional twists that have so often stemmed from alcoholism. Here, here, that is a fact. Uh, my marriage was done. Nobody would have recommended my wife and I stay together, but it is possible through the power of God, through the good work of the 12 steps, through the idea of service to one another, it's entirely possible to mend some very hopeless circumstances. Nearly every sound human being experiences at some time in life a compelling desire to find a mate of the opposite sex with whom the fullest possible union can be made. Spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical. And another way to think about that is if you drink again, these are your deaths. This is the die part, right? That you can die spiritually, your ability to think mentally, emotionally, and physically. Yeah, that's what dies. Anyway, this mighty urge is the root of a great human accomplishment, a creative energy that deeply influences our lives. God fashioned us that way. God fashioned us that way. You're made that way. This is what we're made to do. So our question will be this, a question. How, by ignorance, compulsion, and self-will, do we misuse this gift of our, for our own destruction? How are we doing that? And that's part of the practicing these principles in all our affairs is to overcome that character defect, whatever it is that we use for our own self-destruction and the disillusionment that we're just trying to wrestle out of life what we want for ourselves. Goes on. We AAs cannot pretend to offer full answers to age-old perplexities, but our own experience does provide certain answers that work for us. Here are the answers. When alcoholism strikes, very unnatural situations may develop which work against marriage partnership and compatible union. If the man is affected, the wife must become the head of the house, often the breadwinner. As matters get worse, the husband becomes a sick and irresponsible child who needs to be looked after and extricated from endless scrapes and impasses and arrests and bails and probations. It could go on and on affairs and all sorts of stuff very gradually and usually without any realization of the fact the wife is forced because she didn't choose this the spouse didn't choose this your friend didn't choose this your mom and dad didn't choose this they're forced to become the mother of an erring boy and if she had a strong maternal instinct to begin with the situation is aggravated so that very thing we love you know that victimization that holding them hostage you're gonna do what i want you to do 
because you owe it to me because I'm awesome. It's awesome when you bail me out of jail, isn't it? Right? It's that kind of a thing. Woo. So we take advantage of that motherly instinct. Goes on. Obviously, not much partnership can exist under these conditions. The wife usually goes on doing the best she knows how, the dad, the mom, the spouse, the friend, whoever, the best they know how. Here's a critical line. But meanwhile, the alcoholic alternately loves and hates her maternal care. Wow, right? Because it makes us feel stupid and we feel belittled. When we look at how we're living our lives and we look at what we bring into it, we feel belittled. It's true because we're belittling them. And when I see myself and other people, when I see a reflection of me by how I'm being treated, when I see the results of what I'm doing to other people brought back on me by abandonment, or they fire back at me, or they personally attack me, woo, I don't like it. I don't like it. So a pattern is thereby established that may take a lot of undoing later on. And the undoing happens through step nine. It can be done. Step nine isn't a singular event for me and my wife. Step nine is an ongoing process. And the value of sobriety is just humongous in that step nine. Even so, it is just a starting point. We, we do a step nine is we build on that. We build on that through a thing I like to call CPR, consistency, predictability, and reliability. Yeah, that I'm consistently honest, predictable in my behavior, a reliable friend and mate. I think that's really important. Nevertheless, the, under the influence of AA's 12 steps, these situations are often set right. That's just what I'm trying to tell you is that that was absolutely true in my life. When the distortion has been great, it was for me. However, a long period of patient striving may be necessary. And here's the critical thing. Remember, husband and wife could be anybody. It's any personal relationship by blood or other, right? After the husband joins AA, the wife may become discontented, even highly resentful that Alcoholics Anonymous has done the very thing that all her years of devotion had failed to do. Her husband may become so wrapped up in AA, or the wife may become so wrapped up in AA. And, and his new friends that he is inconsiderately away from home more than when he drank. Seeing her unhappiness, he recommends AA 12 steps and tries to teach her how to live. And I, I did that exactly. It's so funny. She naturally feels that for years she has made a far better job of living than he has. Both of them blame each other and ask when their marriage is ever going to be happy again. They may even begin to suspect it had never been any good in the first place. Maybe not. Maybe not. You can find that out by being honest with yourself. Compatibility, of course, can be so impossibly damaged that a separation may be necessary. That's true. And something I've done with my sponsees is if they want to remain with their spouse, you know, we work on that. We work on that. We try to move them and, and help them through the help of God and the grace of God to become the very best person they can be, the very best spouse possible. And if they really believe that they're practicing these steps and all their affairs relative to their spouse, that they're really doing all they believe they know how to do at the time, and they're still getting treated bad, and they're still not able to do it, they'll arrive at their own conclusion. In the meantime, it's important that we, that I learned, that we learn how to become that ideal person first. We go first. We forgive first. We give first. We're going to suffer some price for this effort, for sure. Our esteem's going to get hit. Personal attacks are going to happen. All that's going to be a part of it. All the while, we're building on our steps, our tools. We're being able to use them in a way that's really, really, really good practice. 
Compatibility, of course, can be so impossibly damaged in spite of all that, that a separation may be necessary. But those cases are the unusual ones. Because this is powerful stuff. And if two people are willing to work together, they may well resolve this. The alcoholic, realizing what we put people through, going through the ACE step, right? Knowing how we've hurt people, realizing what his wife has endured, and now fully understanding how much he himself did to damage her and his children, that's the ACE step nearly always takes up his marriage responsibilities with a willingness and agreement with himself to repair what he can and to accept what he can't. Wow, that's powerful. He persistently tries all of AA's 12 steps, persistently, in spite of difficult circumstances, in spite of not favorable results, even though I'm not getting what I want. I persist, even through difficulty, I persist. He persistently tries all of AA's 12 steps in his home, often with fine results that persistently so critical, consistently, predictability, reliability, persistently tries all of AA's 12 steps. At this point, he firmly but lovingly commences to behave like a partner instead of like a bad boy, like a bad little kid. And above all, he is finally convinced that reckless romancing is not a way of life for him. AA has many single alcoholics who wish to marry and are in a position to do so. Some marry fellow AAs. How do they come out? On the whole, these marriages are very good ones. Their common suffering as drinkers, their common interest in AA, and spiritual things often enhance such unions. It is only where boy meets girl on AA campus and love follows at first sight that difficulties may develop. I heard somebody say once that falling in love just, just takes a split second, right? You see that, that person you're bam, you know, you're, you're all the way in. Staying in love, well, that's another matter. From a religious standpoint, they might go back to those seven deadly sins, right, that we talked about in the fifth step. And uh, we're talking about lust, really, you know, that's what he's really describing here. Anyway, the prospective partners need to be solid AAs and long enough acquainted to know that their compatibility at spiritual, mental, and emotional levels is a fact and not wishful thinking. They need to be sure as possible that no deep-lying emotional handicap in either will be likely to rise up under later pressures to cripple them. The considerations are equally true and important for the AAs who marry outside AA with clear understanding and right grown-up attitudes, walking away from that childish dependence, walking away from that dominating to feel secure. That grown-up attitude, very happy results do follow. And what can be said of many AA members who, for a variety of reasons, cannot have a family life? At first, many of these feel lonely, hurt, and left out as they witness so much domestic happiness about them. If they cannot have this kind of happiness, can AA offer them satisfactions of similar worth and durability? Yeah, yes, wherever, whenever, however they try hard to seek them out, surrounded by so many AA friends, these so-called loners tell us they no longer feel alone. In partnership with others, women and men, they can devote themselves to any number of ideas, people, and constructive projects. Free of marital responsibilities, they can participate in enterprises which would be denied to family men and women. We daily see such members render prodigies of service. They become the trainers of the 12th step and receive great joys in return. The giving is the receiving. When the possession of money and material things was concerned, our outlook underwent the same revolutionary change. With a few exceptions, all of us have been spendthrifts. 
Well, that's true of me. We threw money about in every direction with the purpose of pleasing ourselves and impressing other people. In our drinking time, we acted as if the money supply was inexhaustible. Man, that's so true, right? But I'll tell you one, one thing you can do. If you commit a crime, the federal government will relieve you of your money. <laughs> Though between binges, we'd sometimes go to the other extreme and become almost miserly without real, because we want to make sure I got enough money for liquor. You know, that last 60 bucks, I got a story of getting a job. I had $60 to my name and I stopped and got a $5 pizza for my family and they got about $52 worth of liquor for me. Yeah, that I remember that. Anyway, without realizing it, we were just accumulating funds for the next spree. Money was the symbol of pleasure and self-importance. When our drinking had become much worse, money was only an urgent requirement which could supply us with the next drink. Such a really important idea to remember is how money creates an absolute indifference to other people when we're drinking. Money tells me I'm fine and what I'm doing to you, I'm just not aware of. I don't even think about how I'm hurting other people. And if it pops in, I rationalize it in a split second. Hmm. It was only an urgent requirement which could supply us with the next drink and the temporary comfort of oblivion that it brought. Upon entering AA, these attitudes were sharply reversed, often going much too far in the opposite direction. So true. The spectacle of years of waste threw us into panic. There simply wouldn't be time. We thought to rebuild our shattered fortunes. How could we ever take care of those awful debts, possess a decent home, educate the kids, and set something by for old age? Financial importance was no longer our principal aim. We now clamored for material security. Even when we were still reestablished in our businesses, these terrible fears often continued to haunt us. So true. This made us misers and a penny pincher all over again. Complete financial security we must have or else. We forgot that most alcoholics in AA have an earning power considerably above the average. So we're right back to where we started. We forgot the immense goodwill of our brother AAs who were only too eager to help us to better jobs when we deserve them, when we deserve them, right? We demonstrated the AA program in our life. That's what it's talking about. We forgot the actual or potential financial insecurity of every human being in the world. And worst of all, we forgot God. Yeah, we forgot God, that there's a plan, that your solutions are already coming together, that your opportunities, let's, let's forget it as solutions. Let's dump that on the trash can of God, right? I don't have a problem that requires a solution, I have an opportunity that's going to require some action. An opportunity that requires action is a very empowering thought. Problems that require solutions are sort of depressing thoughts. If you can change that and look at the idea of persisting and persevering after it, boy, that's a powerful set of things to do. You can control how you frame things up by changing your attitude. And that's what this is talking about in the 12th step because we have these tools. So. We're going to finish this about jobs and we're going to dive into those tools. All right, here we go. In money matters, we had faith only in ourselves and not too much of that. And that ends that paragraph. We're going to finish it up here. This all meant, of course, that we were still far off balance when a job still looked like a mere means of getting money, right? If it's not an opportunity to perform and really make a company better, to make a boss look better, to build your skill if you're a carpenter or a hands-on guy, you know, to build your knowledge of business if you're a business manager, to learn how to deal with people better, 
if it's just money, I mean, how unhappy will you be? It's a, it's a really unhappy thing. A mere means of getting money rather than an opportunity for service when the acquisition of money for financial independence looked more important than a right dependence upon God to do his will, to seek and do his will, to serve God and your fellow man, we were still the victims of unreasonable fears. And we rationalized them. Boy, I got to pay my mortgage. Okay. We don't want that to be the focus, that giving is the getting. And these were fears which would make a serene and useful existence at any financial level quite impossible. I don't know about you, but I have the sense of never being satisfied with money in certain mind frames. You know, framework of my mind can tell me it's not enough or I deserve more, almost no matter how good I do. It goes on. But as time passed, we found that with the help of AA's 12 steps, with the tools, we could lose those fears no matter what our material prospects were. We could cheerfully perform humble labor without worrying about tomorrow. It, wait a second. I could cheerfully perform humble labor without worrying about tomorrow. Get in there and be helpful to somebody. Don't worry about the money. If our circumstances happen to be good, we no longer dreaded a change for the worse. For we had learned that these troubles could be turned into great values. Suffering. Remember, suffering breaks down the barriers. It means to come upon, to come to without resistance, to move towards God without any barrier, without any rebellion, without any resistance at all. Suffer. Suffer unto. To suffer unto is an ancient meaning. It's a really beautiful idea. We've moved it today that I'm not getting what I want or I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to lose something I already have. That's how AA's perspective is. And in the world, it's more like, it's just not the way I want it to be. And I hold on to that thought that it's not the way I want it to be. And well, I suffer, right? I'm the one suffering, but it's removing the barriers. It's so important. It goes on to say, if our circumstances happen to be good, we no longer dreaded a change for the worse, for we had learned that these troubles could be turned into great values. It did not matter too much what our material condition was, but it did matter what our spiritual condition was. Money gradually became our servant and not our master, a tool to be helpful to the world, including my own world and not my master. It became a means of exchanging love and service with those about us. When, with God's help, we calmly accepted our lot, then we found we could live at peace with ourselves and show others who still suffered, who are still resisting the same fears that they could get over them too. We found that freedom from fear was more important than freedom from want. So we don't have far to go in this big book at this point, but we're going to take a break and finish this out in step three. But I want to give you, or part three of the 12th step, I want to give you this analogy real quick. The tools of the 12 steps, right? They're just, they're just a small thing at this point. And if you're new to the steps, you've gone through them with your sponsor, or this is really your first exposure to them, then, then you have an opportunity here that's pretty incredible. And so I just wanted to give a little analogy, some sort of mental framework to think about this in. And it's like this. You, all of us got like a favorite home improvement store, whether it's the local hardware store, one of them big box stores, whatever it is. And then all of them have a tool section. And in that tool section, there's really not a wide variety of things. There's not 18 million tools that you got to learn. And sometimes, you know, recovery seems like it's just full of all these tools. Or if you're in a treatment center, you're like, oh my gosh, the tools. 
it's really, you know, it's really simple stuff. There's like hammers and saws and drills and screwdrivers, wrenches of different kinds. And that's kind of it. And then there's a big variety of forms. There's powered ones and handheld ones and different grades and plastic and metal. And there's different types of that same tool, different shapes and sizes and colors and brands. It's still all the same tool. Wrench being a wrench is a wrench until that wrench needs to be a very special wrench, right? Until that hammer needs to be a particular weight until the saw needs to be able to cut a particular thing. And as we build in our experience and knowledge, as we build in our experience and practice, as Bill puts it, as we do this through the practice of the 12 steps, we get better at use, using these tools. And then you notice that, you know, you go to your sponsor and he gives you a little nugget of information and you can use that too. It's a lot like finding the, the bit for the drill that's perfect for the piece of metal and the size of the hole, right? And, and you're able to do it. Now, you still don't know about all the other bits, but you did figure out that this one's going to do the job for you. Unfortunately, I, as an alcoholic, I often know these tools are there and I don't want to use them. I look at that piece of metal that needs the hole drilled through it. And I know I got the bit and I know I got the drill. And I'm like, no, because in my mind, it seems so big and so overwhelming. If I'll just do it, if I'll make that agreement with myself, show willingness that I'm going to do this. I'm just going to do this. I'm going to pick up the drill, put the bin in it and drill it. I'll find it doesn't take hardly any time at all. And then it works really good. And I get the hole in the middle, just like I needed to, you know, and it's really not that big a deal. So something to notice is that the tool section is small in the store, but there's enough tools. There's every single tool you need to do something with every other thing in the store. Every other thing. There's a lumber section and a plumbing and an electrical and all sorts of other things going on. There's home maintenance and gardens and repairs and paint. And there's a tool in that store to make every other thing work out. If, if lumber represented a problem because it's got to be cut at a particular angle, it's got to be a particular type of lumber. It's for a specific purpose. It's got to be done exactly. There's a tool that can help you do that. And that's true in recovery too. The 12 steps are like those basic ideas. And then you're going to get better at using them and you're going to discover the adjuncts or the add-ons or the little pieces that go with it. Some of us have Dremels, right? You get a little kit of little things that come with it. The accessories. You'll learn that the accessories of all those 12 steps are there. And they're generally called patience, kindliness, tolerance, acceptance, prayer, meditation. And they take on a ton of different forms. And you can, you can do this. You can absolutely do this if you can remember the basic set of tools. So as you get into this 12th step, just remember that the set of tools here is for everything in AA, everything in life, every single thing in life. And that's why we practice these principles in all our affairs. You're just getting started. This may seem like nuttiness. I assure you it is not. And if you've been around a long time, it may be time to remember where you come from. It may be a time to remember how to use these tools, that seeking outside counsel, praying to your higher power, working with other people is the actual solution that brings the happiness that this change of attitude, the 12 steps says we can have, actually will come about automatically without any thought or effort on our part if we focus on leveraging these tools for the benefit of others and not just ourselves. So what to talk about today? Well, here's what, something that you can talk about today, and I think you'll really like it. There's, 
there's this idea in AA that goes about all the time, right? And, and it's that we have these open discussion meetings and we don't really talk about the tools. Have a meeting or have a discussion with your sponsor or just talk amongst your, your recovered friends only about the tools, only about the tools. Somebody talk about a tool, step one, step two, step three, and how the adjuncts like patience, kindliness, gentleness, acceptance, how these things came about to help them solve a problem. Whatever it is, whatever problem you had today, it can be little, could be big, doesn't have to be life-changing, could be getting mad at traffic. It could be that your credit card got declined. Whatever it is, how has it helped you? This chapter focuses a lot on interpersonal relationships in the part we just read through. And there, there's some, a little tiny bit more of that, and then we're gonna get into the, the flow of these steps. Even so, that is the critical space, isn't it? Ultimately, the 12 steps teach us how to build quality relationships with our God and our fellow man, especially our spouses and our children and the people we love. How do we leverage these tools there? I would suggest that you use that first in your life. How has this made a difference? Your, was your relationship saved at home? Have your kids come back into your life? Have you seen remarkable things? You might even say miraculous things happen for you, to you, that you really didn't do. You just followed the 12 steps. You, you leveraged these tools and got the result. Have a meeting about that. Sort of like a gratitude meeting, but let's leave the gratitude in the telling of the story. Maybe all of us will be grateful to hear what you have to say. I hope you have a great discussion.